Welcome to another podcast of the Anti-Corruption Evidence, in short, ACE Consortium, based at SOAS University of London. My name is Sophie van Hullen. I'm the Interim Research Director of the Consortium. I'm uh, joined today by Mushtaq Khan, the Executive Director of the Research Consortium, Palavi Roy, the Research Director of ACE, Neil McCullough, who leads the ACE Electricity Research in Lebanon, and Musna Amasri, who's part of the ACE team based in Lebanon. We'll be talking about the problem of corruption in energy sectors of Bangladesh, Nigeria and Lebanon, cutting across the research outputs that have been generated by the ACE Consortium. Part of that output from Bangladesh and Nigeria is already available on our website. For Lebanon, the output will be soon online and available to read. Reliable provision of affordable energy is a key requirement for productivity-enhancing structural transformation in any developing country. While there has been a lot of progress in developing countries in improving the coverage of energy provision and increasing the supply, there are huge and ongoing issues. Given the developmental impact of the sector, governments tend to be heavily involved. Entering the sector requires huge initial investments with big money and big players being involved and the sector itself being very prone to collusion and corruption issues. Thanks, Sophie. I think Bangladesh, like other developing countries, have faced huge problems with a sector where a lot of things have to be lined up, from the supplies of energy, gas or fuel of different sorts, to the generation, to the grid, and finally distribution. And there have been problems and different types of corruption issues on in all these segments in Bangladesh. However, Bangladesh has made good progress in the last 10 years in a very um, unusual way. From the 1980s, Bangladesh started to grow very rapidly on the basis of the garments and textile industry and other industries. And by the mid-2000s, it began to face huge power shortages. There were power cuts of more than six or seven hours a day in the capital, and there was a huge demand for power in the grid. From the 1980s onwards, Bangladesh has had a mixed system of generation with both the public and private sectors, with public-private partnerships bringing in private money to generate power. And initially, it made some really good progress with this private generation. But by the 1990s, something remarkable happened, which is that the government would give tenders, but no one would bid. The bidders dropped out. And Despite their efforts at bringing in competitive bidders, the power supply couldn't be increased. And finally, around 2009, the government passed a new law which allowed them to get unsolicited tenders, that is the government going after an individual company and saying, come and give us a price, negotiate with us, and if it's a good price, we'll give you the contract. That process resulted in a tripling of power supply from in the last 10 years from around 2009 to today, from less than 4,000 megawatts of generation to more than 12,000 now. Remarkable, you might say, except for one thing, which is that the prices at which power is being generated now in the last 10 years has tripled. And that power which is being generated now is sold to the grid through the Bangladesh Power Development Board, all power in Bangladesh has to be sold to the Power Development Board, which then sells it on to distributors. So while the cost of generation has tripled, for political reasons and also because it's a poor country, the Power Development Board couldn't raise its prices to that level, but they did raise prices, prices doubled, but that meant the Power Development Board is now making around about a billion dollars of losses every year. So that's one big problem that constrains the future of the sector and the one that we are addressing in our research. And the other problem is that these high prices are collusive in the sense that there's no competitive bidding behind the granting of these contracts, which means that some of these companies are making so much money that they can then use informal mechanisms, including corruption, to make sure that their expensive power is purchased first by the Power Development Board. It should have been actually buying the cheaper power first and the more expensive power later on in the day. As you know, power demand fluctuates to the day. But in Bangladesh, what happens, and the World Bank has done some very interesting research on this, the Power Development Board buys the more expensive power first and the less expensive power later on. 
And that results in around a billion and a half dollars of losses a year. So however you look at it, there's about at least a billion dollars being wasted every year of taxpayers' money as a result of this expensive power. And this is unsustainable because as more power plants have to be built, that loss will increase. So it's desperately important to find a way of bringing competition back into the system to bring down the collusion and corruption that is driving expensive power. And our research has identified possible strategies which will work. We are pretty sure they will. And if you can bring down that cost of power, you will have the capacity to further increase generation and to solve the other problems in the system, which are still very much there. Panavi, how does this compare to the situation in Nigeria? Uh, thank you very much, Sophie, and thank you very much, uh, Mushtaq. This is going to make for quite an interesting comparison. Now, the irony about Nigeria, uh, and some people might know this, is that it's pretty much awash in oil and gas, both of which can be used very effectively to produce and generate electricity. But we have a situation where a country of almost 200 million people uh, has an installed capacity of about 12,000 megawatts. But on average, the country produces about 5,000 megawatts, you know, ever since uh, reforms took place in the country around 2012, 2013. So that makes for an interesting contrast with Bangladesh, which has a population of about 170 million odd and and, uh, is actually producing and distributing as much electricity as Nigeria. But in Nigeria, only a fraction of that amount is actually being uh, uh, given out to consumers to use. So it's a very interesting situation of a lot of resources being available, but those resources not being put to the best use. And as a result, we have uh, uh, extremely inefficient and inadequate power supply in a developing country that actually, especially now with the pandemic, desperately needs to rebase its industrial structure and needs to provide employment to a vast swathe of its very, very young young population. If you ask me, and our research has, has actually honored this, if, if, you, if you actually ask anyone to pinpoint exactly the cause of uh, this problem in the Nigerian electricity sector. It's actually constrained by a number of interdependent uh, factors. Chief among them is what we call legacy corruption. This used to be a complete state-owned behemoth at one point of time. This, you know, state apparatus used to control uh, the entire grid. And when we mean the entire grid, we mean the electricity generation aspect of it, the transmission aspect of it, and the distribution aspect of it, along with however, whatever fuel is being used to feed into these uh, electricity uh, generating plants. That entire chain was was governed by, um, was actually owned by the, the public sector. And there was very high levels of corruption. And that was thought to be the main problem. And at, around 2012, 2013, the country went through a privatization process. It was called Big Bang because it was going to be, and it was uh, the biggest African privatization effort in the electricity sector at that point in time. And everybody thought that that was going to be the answer. But I've just given you the headline figures for the sector that as it happened, that turned out not to be the answer. One of them was, of course, that these these years of corruption in the public sector meant that there was lots of underinvestment in uh, in the technical capacity of the grid to function. So therefore, electricity could be produced very efficiently. But all evidence points to the fact that corruption has actually not gone down despite uh, despite the privatization effort that took place. And, and why was that? But the roots of that actually lie in how privatization was implemented. The, the designing of the contracts for privatization was was constructed in such a way that the Players and companies who ended up bidding for uh, uh, mandates in the Nigerian electricity sector were companies who had very strong political connections. They, they could have been owned by ex-generals uh, uh, in, in the Nigerian army or, or uh, you know, military leaders who had been in power in the Nigerian government. A very, very strong, you know, personnel, company personnel who could be ex-governors who were in senior positions in, in ministries at one point in time. So pretty much without, without fail, most of the companies that bid for the generating and the distributing contracts had very strong political connections. Now, what does this mean? This essentially meant that whatever the benchmark for the privatization process was, that so many so many megawatts of electricity had to be produced, power had to be provided uh, uninterruptedly, billings were to be transparent, the entire process had to be transparent across the grid. All these benchmarks that were set out 
because these companies were all politically connected, they actually didn't need to meet those benchmarks because their connections would mean there was going to be very little enforcement on, on these on these companies. So they could actually continue operating without meeting those benchmarks, which actually meant that generation therefore was very inefficient. Generation was low. Distribution uh, companies were not uh, held to their, uh, to their sort of uh, supply benchmarks. And we have now a situation where the, the sector is actually now losing money hand over fist. And that is not a particular kind of business model that a private player with no political connections wants to find itself in. The financial sector situation in the sector is such that the losses of the existing players are not covered. And indeed, the losses are mounting every day. But for these politically connected players, that doesn't matter because they have access to other kinds of resources. That is not just the kind of, as I said, business model that a private sector player with no connections, but who is technically capable, wants to find themselves in. So that becomes a huge problem, has become a huge problem in the Nigerian power sector. You no longer have interested private parties willing to take part in the Nigerian uh, uh, electricity sector. So that's one. But what's very different from the, the Bangladesh story is that that's, that's what we call, let's say, the larger or the macro level. At the micro level, at the more grassroots level, you have huge violations by consumers. And that's largely because consumers do not get enough power. Nigeria is famous for being, the Nigerian power sector is actually famous for having supplying power for just about five to six hours of the day, if, if they're lucky in some regions. And some of the biggest constituencies affected are small and medium uh, enterprises who generally tend to be the sort of productive engine of any manufacturing sector in a developing country. But across the board, most of them don't get more than five hours of power a day. And that that is extremely problematic. Consumers, residential consumers, uh, poorer residential consumers don't get power. They can't also buy uh, the generators and the diesel that's required. So this kind of corruption actually affects not just the larger electricity sector, but the consumers and a lot of these consumers, SMEs, residential uh, residential customers, are forced into corruption. They then have to do deals with with local with distribution companies and their personnel locally to to buy, let's say, power uh, informally. It doesn't reach the, the the books of the distribution company. They can actually steal electricity from power lines. They have to buy smuggled diesel to fund their to fuel their generators, or they just end up not paying bills. So we have a huge context of corruption even at the consumer level, which I think is very different from the Bangladesh story. Thank you, Padavi. Neil, what can you tell us about the energy sector in Lebanon and how does this compare to Nigeria and Bangladesh? Yes, thanks very much, Sophie. I mean, I think there's actually some striking parallels, particularly with the Nigerian case and the and the catalogue of woe that uh, that Pallavi just uh, just elaborated on. The electricity sector in Lebanon is in very bad shape. There are significant power cuts all across the country in most, if not every day. Particularly bad uh, for areas which are further away from Beirut, the capital. Um, the sector is dominated by a monopoly, a state-run uh, enterprise, Electricity du Liban (EDL). Uh, who do almost all of the generation, the transmission and the distribution to, to the households. The costs of that generation are extremely high, but it sells its electricity for a very low price. Uh, the tariff hasn't changed for years and years. And as a result, it makes huge losses. Perhaps half of all of Lebanon's debt, uh, and as many people will know, uh, Lebanon is in the midst of a major economic crisis. About half of all of Lebanon's debt is as a result of the transfers which have been made over many years to the uh, state-run uh, monopoly of the of EDL. Um, and as a result of this really poor service, the vast majority of people invest in electricity from private generators. So probably more than 50% almost of electricity is coming from uh, private generators, which means that some local person has one or two generators and they hook them up and they will supply you electricity when EDL is not supplying. And there are literally thousands of these spread all across the, the country. And so all consumers have to have effectively two contracts, one with a proper electricity from EDL, as it were, which cuts off all the time, and then the other one with an legal unregistered local generator. And one of the things which our research has looked at is that quite remarkably in one city in Lebanon, the city of Zahle, they've managed to achieve 24-7 power with a 100% collection of bills and an efficient and well-managed utility. And this has been done uh, by the local utility EDZ, which is a private concession. And so what we've tried to look at is how was it possible for EDZ to create a sort of little a pocket of functioning effectiveness within of the general electricity system of Lebanon, which is extremely corrupt and dysfunctional. Thank you, Neil. 
Musa, do you want to add anything from the perspective of the Lebanon case? Uh, yeah, I think Neil covered it, but just to add what it means, what this means at a more personal everyday level, because it has produced some kind of like an ecosystem of behaviors of adaptation to these two two different sources of electricity and has made the problem of electricity symbolic of state failure in Lebanon because of this kind of everyday impact and because of the huge losses, economic losses that it causes. So looking at all three countries, the collusion and the lack of involvement of politically unconnected investors seems to be the cost-cutting issue across these different case studies. Why is that? So why is collusion happening? Neil, back to you on the Lebanon case. Collusion and corruption in the Lebanon case happens at many different levels. You know, it, there's corruption in the fuel supply process. There's corruption within of the state-run utility EDL as well. There's uh, corruption in theft of electricity and lack of collections. All along the va- electricity value chain, if you like, there, there are problems. One of the interesting things, though, which we've been looking at in this particular city of Zakhle is how the uh, service was improved, not necessarily by improving corruption, but by making it much more efficient. In Zakhle, there were all of these local generators. And then this, this private concession, EDZ, managed to push out all of those local generators and replace them with one very large local generator, which was run by EDZ under a contract with a UK firm. And by doing so, it managed to dramatically improved the efficiency of service and the quality of service, but it still generated very large rents, rents which it was capturing both from its own consumers and also because it received subsidized electricity from EDL. So in a sense, what you moved from was a very dysfunctional set of corruption, corrupt arrangements, to a far more functional set of arrangements, but which also have deep governance problems. Maybe Muslim, you want to elaborate a bit further? Yes, of course. So how did we how did EDZ manage to do that? So basically with the case study we explore is that EDZ managed to generate 24-7 electricity, as Neil says, at reliable quality with a collection rate of 99%. But how did they do it? So what they did was the intersection of four major factors. One, capitalizing on the company's historical context. Two, endorsement by the local community. Three, win-win political settlement approach. And four, presenting an agile economic model that minimized risk. So on the company's historical context, so they, the company had the 1923 concession agreement and like it had subsequent extensions and it cultivated based on being a distribution company for ADL electricity for all of these years and its excellent service and management and, uh, and ability to repair uh, problems right away. It prepared the community and gained Uh, community support for it to be generating energy. At the same time, this was coupled with a kind of uh, huge opposition to the diesel generators in Zahle and across Lebanon, really, because this was a very dysfunctional system that was very costly, that that was very difficult to uh, regulate. Uh, So it capitalized on that. Second variable is the endorsement by local community. Basically, EDZ invested a lot in consolidating clientelistic ties, both both at the national and community level. So EDZ engineered this kind of uh, relationship with the community at key points in time when its contracts were up for renewal. So in 2013, 2014, and 2018. How did it do that? It used mechanisms, like it used different strategies. One of them is it launched a really very attractive marketing strategy that spoke to the people and the customer base, created a sense of identity for Zahle and pride of being having 24-7 electricity and that is like free of the greedy diesel generator operators. Two, it bought off the diesel generators, compensated them uh, or employed them, especially in Zahle where it would uh, need the support of the community. Three, it created a family-like corporate culture that aims at increasing the sense of ownership within its employees and built, like invested in the relationship with the like, labor union of the company. And four, it paid journalists and media outlets to ensure good coverage and like to prevent criticism, and not only in local media, but at the national level. These were uh, issues at the na- uh, local level, but at the national level, it capitalized also on this kind of community support and managed to broker an agreement at the national level where a win-win political settlement agreement. So despite national level opposition, 
uh, managed to have a contract that minor changes in the contract allowed it to continue to operate. So whereas it used to buy from uh, EDL the kilowatt hour for 50 LBP, that price was range, uh, increased to 88, which secured kind of acceptance at the national level, but it still was provided enough profit for uh, EDZ. And also the shift from it being the contract shifted from it being a concession, so it lost rights as a concession, but secured a different, a separate contract. There is, and that was seen as success in the eyes of that, ending this kind of Ottoman era agreement to a more kind of modern new one that is state control. The fourth and last thing that it is added well was supported the success is presenting like this kind of agile economic model that minimized risks. So there are two levels again to this. One, it capitalized on people's eagerness to get rid of the diesel generator cartel, which meant that people were more willing to pay a higher price for a reliable electricity supply. And in addition, in its generation, it included de-risking measures. So in a way, instead of generating on its own, it actually secured through the contract with Agrico that they were generating electricity and then it is that could charge a higher rate for the electricity it was generating and could price have a higher pricing for that, but without having the risk of operating or actually purchasing the generating equipment. Halavi, do you want to add to Nigeria? So why is it that collusion happens in the energy sector in Nigeria? Sure, Sophie. Such fascinating stories. And it's it's a fairly similar uh, story in Nigeria. Interesting to see the parallels in, in one case uh, uh, with the other. So in the Nigeria case, it's not that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of disgruntled Nigerians will tell you that, oh, the privatization was actually only set up to fail. But that's not really the true story. It's very easy for us to fall into, you know, those kinds of explanations. But there was certainly an expectation that uh, some of some of the investors in the privatization would actually end up investing in upgrading in in capabilities so that electricity supply could be improved but honestly the state of uh, the, the Nigerian grid in terms of technical capability was so low that for a lot of these investors who a of course as I'd mentioned earlier did not have the technical capability the investments required would have just been too large so then you know the sort of fallback option was the political connections that that certainly in a in a manner of speaking, uh, sort of almost bailed them out from having to make those those investments and 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 therefore take up upfront huge risks because if you're going to it w- couldn't have been their own money they would have had to borrow they had already borrowed from Nigerian banks to invest in the privatization to borrow more to to invest in upgrading would have been too much of a risk for them to take so that's when the fallback option is well let me use my connections to see if I can find a way out of this and that has happened and what that has now meant is the Nigerian electricity sector has entered a kind of vicious cycle there is no investment uh, you are going to keep on using your political connections and you're actually going to push the sector into a worse position with every month as debts mount. So the only way out is to keep the sector running and the sector has to be kept running because, you know, in one sense, the electricity sector, if you it was used for the financial crisis, but in one sense, in a lot of developing countries, indeed anywhere, the electricity sector is just simply too big to fail. You know, having something that, that produces what they call sclerotic or epileptic supply is better than nothing. So, so whatever it is, the government will have to keep putting in aid into the sector to ensure that at least bits of it is running, some electricity is is actually being uh, being produced and given out to consumers, industrial, residential and commercial consumers. But, you know, when you say it like this, it becomes rather obvious why when you're, when you're, let's say, a foreign investor from any country in the world, you're not going to look at the sector with a lot of enthusiasm because you know that, A, you will have to make those huge investments. And you will be the only one making those huge investments because nobody else in the sector has the incentive to make those huge investments. You're going to take one look at it and say, well, probably not now unless something happens that lowers that risk element for me. I am going to make a huge number of upfront investments. Well, how can that risk come down? And at, and at this point, that doesn't look very, very forthcoming in, in the end-to-end national grid, you see. In such a context, why would a capable player find it attractive to do the hard work when it knows others just simply do not have to put in that that effort? And it's also interesting here, I'd just like to mention that, you know, privatization isn't the cure-all for, for all kinds of corruption or indeed other inefficiencies. We also know other inefficiencies exist. And why might that be the case? Because even in the context of privatization, the process can sometimes only entrench very existing 
existing political or extractive interests. And that's that's very, very clear from the Nigerian case here. So the question is, if privatization isn't the answer, what is, well, it's how, how do you privatize? The answer could be, you know, designing an institutional mechanism or a policy that actually ensures private players can take part, can invest in, and recoup those investments with reasonable profits. And that's what our research has actually been about. How do you, we all know that, that, that the grid is problematic. Well, then how do you move on from that credible institution or, or to that credible institutional mechanism, Sophie? So I'm going to stop here. Mushtaq, what is uh, the reason in the case of Bangladesh? Why does it not happen that these politically unconnected investors invest? I think the three cases are quite similar at, at a high level of generalization. It's essentially the problem is that if you want to invest in the power sector, especially if you want to generate cheap and clean power, that is power which is not incredibly polluting and damaging to the environment, and you, have, you want to do it cheaply, you have to invest at scale. You need to put in a lot of money up front and you will recover this money over a long period of time. That's why power sector investments come with very complex contracts with usually a public sector owned buyer like the Power Development Board in Bangladesh. And those contracts specify all kinds of contingencies, and they come with sovereign guarantees that the government will adhere to this contract. The problem is the investor looks at the situation, looks at the risk, looks at the cost of capital. And then when they go to raise money in the market, they find that people aren't willing to lend them at very low interest rates. Their cost of generation becomes therefore quite high in this risky contracting environment. The government is giving them a sovereign guarantee, but they ask themselves, if I produce power at this price over 25 years, can this country actually pay given that it's a relatively poor country? And in many cases, the answer is no. The price at which they can generate power, even if the government is giving them a contract, they begin to suspect that somewhere down the line, the government or the agency that is buying will not have the money to actually pay them. And then they don't want to go into the legal process of the sovereign guarantee being triggered and so on. So they walk. Now, what then happens is that the only people who are left standing are the people who are politically close to the government. They could be public sector players from other countries, or they could be private sector players. It doesn't actually matter. If the only people left in the bidding process or the negotiation process at that point are politically close to the government, they can do one-to-one agreements, which give them much of their return up front. And and that reduces risk. That means that you have very high power prices. And by selling at a very high power price, that's one way of reducing the risk. But it means, of course, that you are ignoring the fact that in the future, you will not be able to pay. Well, no one minds because they're all getting their returns quickly. And they're leaving a big problem further down for future governments or future generations. And that's the real problem with the power sector. So somehow, you need to get politically unconnected players wanting to bid. That means that the price at which they can generate power has to be close to the price that they think this country can afford to pay. Otherwise, they will walk. The Bangladesh experience shows that actually it is really quite easy to do that. And we saw that in the early days in the 1990s and 2000s, when Bangladesh was moving into the private sector and doing PP agreements with private investors, the a portion of the investment for these projects came from international financial institutions like the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the Islamic Development Bank, and other banks, which would give long-term loans at a slightly lower interest than the market rate of interest, and not for the entire project, but maybe for 10, 20 of the project cost. And they would give, particularly the World Bank, partial risk guarantees, which would insure them from delays in payments by the government later on. That package we show in our research was extremely effective in reducing the cost of generating the power by a few cents, not only because of the direct impact of the reduced interest rate, but because having that package made it easy for these people to raise money in the market from other sources at a lower cost because they were now assured that the the, the part of the cost has come down. And the risk of the investor went down even more dramatically if the government gave the investors leases on government-owned land so that the investor didn't have to go out and buy their land 
in a market in a place like Bangladesh, and I'm pretty sure there's the same in countries like Nigeria, where buying land is very time-consuming in terms not of the price of land, but the transaction costs. You have to buy land from many different people. The property rights aren't clear. For someone who is not completely politically connected, buying land itself, listeners might find this hard to believe, is, is a really risky process, which raises the cost of doing business. So simply by doing these two things, by providing the land for the project as a long lease from the government, and providing part of the project cost at one or two percentage points lower than the market price, brought in politically unconnected investors who said, well, now I can imagine producing power at a price that I think the country can pay. And so I can believe the sovereign guarantees that the government is giving me in my contract. I will bid. And Bangladesh built at, at in, in the late 90s and early 2000s some of the lowest cost private sector power plants in Asia, they became a benchmark for how effective private power production can be in a developing country. Great. The problem was no one understood this critical significance of those small interventions which had reduced the risk and made this possible. And in subsequent years, the World Bank moved out of lending long-term to power sector. They went into solar, they went into other things. And the government said, well, you're so cheap and so effective in generating power, you can go and buy your own land. And as Further tenders were given to um, build power plants. A remarkable thing happened. No one was bidding anymore. And then I, you know, there was a power scarcity. By the mid-2000s, this was the number one political issue in the country. And in 2009, they changed the law to allow these unsolicited contracts to happen. Now, here is the, the solution. Our research identifies that simply by providing that subsidized or slightly lower than market rate of interest coming from international financial institutions and leased land reduces the cost of generating power by more than 60%, adjusting for all other characteristics of the plant. In other words, comparing plants which are exactly the same in terms of technology, fuel, age, those which tended in a context where there was this potential competition because unconnected bidders would bid, were offering prices 60%, 62% lower than those incentives were not there. So the unconnected investors weren't there and they could set the collusive pricing. A 60% reduction in price for relatively trivial subsidies is fantastic illustration where development support should come from, from international development partners, from the World Bank and from the government itself because the savings that you make are orders of magnitude bigger than the support that you are providing. And that is why we don't even call that a subsidy. We call that co-investment by a development partner or a development bank or the government. That co-investment made, made at the right point has a huge impact rather than what actually happened in Bangladesh, which is to say, come and invest and we will guarantee your prices. Then all you have left are the politically connected people. And then you end up subsidizing them massively more to the tune of more than a billion dollars a year. And so what we are suggesting is that if you have to provide support to investors, the way you provide the support to investors is of critical significance because you want to provide that support in a way that brings in the politically unconnected investors. And if you can do that, you have achieved, you, you achieve almost unexpected magical results. And we show this by comparing plants in Bangladesh those who were in competition with others because of the nature of the incentives and those who were not. And the remarkable thing is the same company, and Bangladesh has some really good capable companies generating power, the same companies producing power with the same technologies at two different prices. And the only difference is that in one case, they were in a tender where those incentives meant there was potential competition from others, so they had to be competitive. And in, in another case, they were not in any competition, so they could have this collusive pricing. That is dramatic proof that risk matters in these investments. And if you can find a strategy of reducing the risk for the politically unconnected investor, you can achieve almost magical results. So our approach in Bangladesh is very connected to the other countries, but the way you reduce risk in these different countries is different because the history and the structure of the industry is different. In Bangladesh, we think that these incentives can be reproduced at very little cost, will have a dramatic effect 
on the industry going forward. And we know that even politically connected companies can make money at 60% lower prices if they face competition. And we have no reason to believe that they won't continue bidding because they're already producing power at those prices. So that's the solution. And the solution is staring us in the face. That doesn't mean this is the only problem in power sector in Bangladesh. There are many other problems. But this is the bottleneck problem. If you can solve this problem of reducing the cost of generating power, you can then turn your attention to relatively smaller problems in the grid and in the distribution system, which can then be tackled sequentially. So our approach is also saying, don't try to fix all the problems in one go. Fix the most important bottlenecks which are feasible to fix and rely on this horizontal competition, what we describe in, in ACE as a horizontal peer group pressure. The competition between companies is your best guarantee of reducing corruption than trying to do this by enforcing rules on politically connected companies, which you can't enforce. Thank you, Mushtaq. This is fascinating. And you already provided us with an anti-corruption strategy for Bangladesh via two simple risk reduction strategies, co-investment and the provision of subsidies. Palavi, what would be an effective anti-corruption strategy for Nigeria? So as I said, you know, when you, when you set up Nigeria, the one thing that you see is you're actually uh, facing a whole host of interconnected constraints. So it's, it, it's not going to be easy in the long to medium term or medium to long term, let's say. To, to actually uh, address each and every one of those. And in fact, that's not quite feasible. And, and in line with, with the ACE framework, you not only have to look at what's going to have the most impact, but we also have to look at where is it that it's most feasible to address. So, you know, sorting out the problems of the grid involves multiple issues. It has to be done. But in the meantime, electricity supply has to increase to support productive activities. And for us, we looked around and where was the biggest constraint along with where could we also have the biggest impact? And it seems fairly clear from our research that it is productive SME clusters. And there are quite a few across Nigeria, but we decided to focus on on the southeast because of that, as I'd mentioned earlier, this is this is where manufacturing was once competitive, continues to be very, very competitive. A lot of Nigerians are very rightly proud about the Maiden ABBA label. You know, you'll find shoes, you'll find tailoring services. They, they started off small, but they're now actually fairly productive and competitive entrepreneurial units. But they have clearly one clear bottleneck, and that is electricity access supply. And, uh, you know, entrepreneurs find all sorts of ways around it. And I, I explained that by hooking or, or, or by buying smuggled diesel, other kinds of informal arrangements. This only raises the costs of corruption. Now, so for us, uh, a policy strategy had to be twofold. One is that it had to identify a host of beneficiaries who would have in their own interest to pay for electricity if the electricity that was given to them would solve their problems of competitiveness and lack of access to electricity. So that was one. The second was also to to bring in or, or demonstrate to interested private sector partners that there is a segment in the Nigerian electricity sector where you could actually take part without having the kind of political connectedness you'd need to be part of the grid. Now, we all know that across developing countries, and this is something that both you and, and, and you said in your introduction and Mushtaq said initially, that the electricity sector is, is structured such that you, you require some kind of political connection to get through. Your upfront investments are very high. The risks are very high. So when contracts aren't going to be watertight, you need some kind of, let's say, the sort of uh, satisfaction that, yes, if I, if, I, if I need a bailout, the government is going to bail me out. Uh, so that is why there is a level of political collusion. But, you you know, private investors aren't looking for that in Nigeria right now. So we had, we had to come up with a solution that was therefore in this manner twofold. And our research clearly pointed to the fact that this was possible. And there are now policy nudges in Nigeria through policies like embedded power generation, uh, you know, independent distribution networks. So what we were basically talking about is we keep the, 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 the transformation of the grid and the reforms in the national grid to for, for a sort of more medium term prospect. And that would require a lot more coordination between donors, between the Nigerian government. And that's already happening. But in the meantime, for the productive sector, what we are suggesting is you provide grid access or electricity supply through a grid that's embedded and disaggregated, or it's a mini grid that's separate from the national one. So there is, let's say, some, some small provider who provides 20 megawatts of electricity to an identified cluster, which actually comes together and says, yes, I'm ready to pay for electricity 
from this provider because I know that this is something that that will make my my operations much more competitive. See, one problem that Nigeria is of is faced with is is this perception, sometimes true, that consumers simply don't pay their electricity bills, and the Nigerian electricity sector can't increase tariffs because those bills will just not be paid. But here is a problem: you can't increase tariffs when your supply is so ineffective, and you can't expect consumers to therefore pay. But that doesn't mean where there is effective demand existing, like with our SME clusters, that they will not want to pay those those tariffs in in return for a proper electricity supply. So that is what our research actually proved out, uh, proved to prove to demonstrate really, because uh, this is really the anti-corruption solution that we are now now referring to, because we're saying that there is demand. And there is willingness to pay on the part of SMEs. And the private sector is therefore assured of a market where they know they will be able to realize their bills and that they don't need to be as, as politically connected. And this, this is also, uh, in our research, an example of what we call horizontal self-enforcement, which is that there is a particular section of productive stakeholders who will adhere to the rules in their own interest. When we spoke to uh, our, our SMEs, our target SMEs, they were very clear. Well, we break the rules because we don't have a choice. But if we do have a policy mechanism where we are assured of that supply, it's in my interest to pay and not break the rules because I actually want to run those two shifts and where possible, I want to run those three shifts. So it provides fresh investors the intention to take part in a market where they are not competing with those with politically uh, with political connections. And, you know, being able to demonstrate that willingness to pay was very, very important for us because it shows that there there is a a large market, the SME clusters in Nigeria, which can actually enter into these kinds of institutional contracts. So for us, that was really what our policy anti-corruption strategy is and therefore what our policy is to improve electricity supply in the short term. That's it for me, uh, uh, from me, Sophie, on this. Thank you, Palami. Fascinating. So an insurance of demand by building or setting up mini grids for SME clusters where we know they're all providers, investors know that is demand um, for sure. Moisa, how does that compare to the anti-corruption strategy in Lebanon? What is your view on what could work in the case of Lebanon? I think what it is that shows us is that it is possibly a solution. Uh, Decentralization is possibly a solution. And also on the socio-political level, the kind of the value of leveraging the community demands is much more easier. At the gives more power to the people, as to speak. But is this scalable? And what are the wider lessons for anti-corruption strategies? Since I don't want to be very pessimistic, I'm going to allow Neil to answer that question because I'm less optimistic about the value of the model. I think there's two potential solutions. But exactly as Musna says, I think there are deep challenges with both of them. The first potential solution for corruption in in uh, Lebanon's electricity sector is the one that has been pursued for the last 20 years and more, which is to try and reduce the costs and to reduce corruption within of EDL and within of the main centrally provided electricity sector. And That um, could be done, for example, by using far more renewables. So there are wind power projects which are coming up there, which have now got power purchase agreements with the state, which would dramatically reduce the costs of electricity so they wouldn't have to rely on extremely expensive heavy fuel oil. But the fundamental problem with that approach and the reason why it's failed to date is that it requires a credible off-taker, requires somebody who's actually able to buy the electricity. And the Lebanese state is broke. And consequently, the reforms are fundamentally against the interests of the country's elite who are benefiting from the current electricity system. For example, the corruption I mentioned before in the fuel supply system. It's extremely difficult to get those uh, reforms that you need in the centralized system. Um, One example of that, for example, is that um, for years now, the law has said that there should be an independent electricity regulator. But there is no independent electricity regulator. The um, the state has has consistently failed to establish an independent regulator because that is against the interests of those running the current system. So the that whether or not it's possible to to achieve that central level reform, I think, is really open to question, and it's very closely linked to whether or not it's possible for Lebanon to move away from its current political settlement at the national level. That is the huge debate in Lebanon at the moment: is whether or not the current nature of the elite settlement, which has been governing Lebanon for years, can be reformed for the benefit of all Lebanese people going forward. 
In the absence of that national level reform and the ability to change the central system, the other solution is to give private players at the local level the ability to invest and try and make returns locally from an electricity business in exactly the way that Zachley has done through its private concession model. It is definitely not the best model, but it might be the, it is a second best solution and exactly it's a reasonable solution and it may be the only one which works. There is, I mean, Palabi referred to in Nigeria identifying that there's a willingness to pay. The people of Zakli have shown quite convincingly that there is a real willingness to pay. You know, uh, they may get cheap electricity from EDL, but it cuts off all the time. They're very happy to pay significantly high implicit tariff in order to get the electricity that they want. The real issue there is will the politics of Lebanon allow that second best solution? For example, we've got an example from Zakli where one particular company, EDZ, managed very cleverly to sort of build alliances and to create win-win settlements and to navigate the political landscape in a way that made it possible. What's not clear is whether that's just a one-off based upon the characteristics of Zakli and the characteristics of that particular company and individual, or or whether this model could work at the national level. One possibility would be that you could have a concession model which was reproduced around the country where individual private concessions were able to make investments in renewables, for example, and to set up contracts with with local people in order to supply them. That is possible. But the challenge there is that Lebanon's politics is so deeply riven by sectarian cleavages that it might well be that one particular region, for example, is dominated by one sectarian group, and therefore any measure that might benefit them would be blocked by another sectarian group. That is one of the reasons for the paralysis of the Lebanese state over many years. And so whether or not even that decentralized solution is on offer offer is open to question. But at least we have one example of it working. And so that perhaps points a way in which the concession model properly reformed might be a solution. Mushtaq, how now we have heard about the three country case studies, if you want, about the energy sector and energy provision in Bangladesh, Nigeria and Lebanon. How do these three country examples we have just heard about demonstrate the importance of the ACE approach or ACE framework? So I think the interesting thing is how different the country situations are at, in one sense. Details are very different, but there are also huge similarities at a general level of the problem in, in the power generation sector and and distribution um, supply. And what it tells us is that we need to have a very good understanding of both the economics of the power sector. This is something that is quite complicated, as well as the politics of how to make that work. And we have to find solutions that are targeting the most promising areas in each country where change can happen. And, And identifying those areas where change can happen is itself a task. Because it's not self-evident. There isn't a blueprint you can take and say, if you begin in this way, then you can make progress. Let us recap on the fundamental economic problem. The fundamental economic problem is that markets left to themselves don't work too well in contexts where investors have to make very significant upfront investments. They're bound by contracts with the buyer of power, which is almost always a public entity, but can be semi-autonomous entities. And price that they have to agree about also has to be, in the minds of the generator, a feasible price for the country. So I think this is also something that is quite interesting. If you're supplying to a small community of SMEs as in Nigeria or to consumers as in Lebanon, you, you have a very specific pricing issue, which is the willingness to pay of that community. But if you're trying to sell into the grid, you're looking really at the capacity of the country because the grid is going to buy from all kinds of um, power generators. And you don't want to be left at the back of the queue if it starts running out of money to make payments, which is what is the situation in, in Bangladesh. And if you want to get the big power generators to come in and sell to the grid, you have to make it feasible for them to imagine that the price at which we are selling is a price at which could be sold on to consumers, which include not just an SME cluster, but a whole variety of industries, a whole variety of consumers all over the country. That's very important to keep in mind. And that's where I think if one of the ways that in in the Bangladesh context seems to work quite well is to directly contribute to a cost reduction of the generator by reducing the risks of acquiring land, of um, 
getting access to credit in these highly risky contexts. And as we have shown in our research, that can have a fantastically big effect, unexpectedly big, more than 60% on the pricing. And the only way you can explain that is that it opens up competition and brings in politically unconnected investors. So one of the common themes running through the three case studies is how do you reduce the risk for the politically unconnected investor? And the strategies can be different. The strategies could be focusing on communities uh, where there's willingness to pay. The strategies might be doing political deals, as in Lebanon, which allow some uh, regional power suppliers come up with their own deals, or in the case of Nigeria with SMEs, clusters. And in Bangladesh, it's about attracting local and international power generators by making it possible for them to imagine that price at which they will generate the power is going to be close to the, the price that industry and consumers can pay. And I think this complex set of dots need to be connected the politics and the economics need to be connected if you're going to have useful reform, which reduces corruption and makes power cleaner and cheaper in developing countries. And that is what the ACE approach is contributing to. It's opening up this debate that it's not a simple issue of transparency and accountability and procurement reforms, because those mechanisms cannot be enforced at all if the only people playing in the game are politically connected players. So we at least need to make it possible for just one politically unconnected player to say, I'm interested. And then as we have seen in Bangladesh, prices change. The whole situation changes. And you can get effective reduction of collusive and corrupt outcomes by addressing the problem in a slightly different way, which is to increase the competition coming from politically unconnected players. And that's the really promising part of our research is that we are coming up with out-of-the-box ways of solving the problem of pricing and supply and also cleaner energy in ways that are feasible to imagine in the kinds of developing countries that we are working in. This is a fantastic summary to conclude our podcast. Thank you very much, Neil Musna, Paravi and Mushtaq for this fascinating exchange. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. Our research findings for Bangladesh and Nigeria are available as working papers on our website, which is ace.soas.ac.uk. The findings from Lebanon energy sector will be published there soon as well. Thank you, everyone.